Hi there, world changers. Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we'll be taking a deep intellectual dive into the academic research about what drives people to take pro-environmental action and behavior. Today, we'll be talking with Joshua D. Wright. He's an assistant professor and researcher in social psychology at St. John's College in New York. And the research paper we'll be diving in today is called Imagining a Sustainable World, Measuring Cognitive Alternatives to the Environmental Status Quo. Now, this title really catched my eye because as some of you might know, I had recently done a TEDx talk on the power of environmental imagination. And I think it is a life-changing and overwhelmingly underutilized tool in our world-changing toolkit. His research actually gave people an exercise in environmental imagination, which involved asking people to write down their ideas for a better future, like a world run on solar power or free from fossil fuel cars, after which they tested how this exercise affected people's political advocacy and their environmental behavior. And this research into the power of imagining a better world is such a big deal because our environmental movement has just been dragged down in this doom narrative of imagining the worst possible scenario for ecosystems and for climate change. And although this is serious that we do get this information about how bad it could be out there, we can't build a better world unless we can imagine the future world and how good it could be. We need environmental imagination so we can dig into our resources to come up with the ideas and the innovations and the emotional energy to make this world happen. And if we're just constantly reacting to negative information, this is not the mind space. It's not the psychology that's needed for decades long, enormous innovation and problem solving in the space. What motivates me to dive into this research in this particular space is because ever since I was a child, I could imagine a different type of world. In my TED talk, I talked about some of my earliest memories being five years old and driving. This would have been in 1985, driving in my mother's white Volkswagen, the original old school Volkswagen, through the city in Melbourne. And I would just imagine what the city would look like if it was covered in flowers, in morning glory. I couldn't understand why urbanization was so dirty and ugly. And all my life, I've been imagining the urban world covered in greenery and flowers and art. And I don't see why we can't do it. I mean, that core vision that it could be better is what drives all of my work. I'm not driven to be an environmental professional an activist by responding to negative things. I might have when I was a teenager, but now I'm pursuing a, a vast and complex, very attractive, exciting dream of a, a future world where we're able to design nature and modern technology working in a symbiosis. This is incredibly attractive, scintillating type of dream. And I think when we can really latch 
onto that dream. We can describe that dream. We can use it to build movements. We can be so much better as environmental professionals. How many of us are really, really good at articulating the future world? This I have a dream speech for the planet that we're trying to bring people on. This is not something that we're practicing. It's not something that we workshop when we go to air pollution conferences. We need to get so much better at this. And I think we need a whole new movement, a whole new zeitgeist on imagining what this world could be. Partly because it's fun, because it helps us get ideas. But what is so interesting about this research paper we're going to dive into with Josh is that it actually practically helps people start to engage in more day-to-day behaviors and more political involvement. It's part of priming people's psychology to actually get active. I hope you'll be able to bring some of these concepts into your work as an environmental professional. So let's dive into the conversation with Assistant Professor Joshua D. Wright. Thank you for joining us today, Josh. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, what I love to ask everybody when I start these interviews is that The current environmental and sustainability and climate change movement tends to not know much about social sciences or or really practice environmental psychology. What's the problem in our movement when we just don't understand this stuff and we're not implementing it in the way that we design campaigns and programs? Yeah, I mean, the the problem for us would be if, if organizations, these collective entities that are trying to drive these climate change movements don't understand the social science, then they may not be able to effectively navigate what what is trying to be accomplished. They may not be able to successfully get these groups of individuals together to take what may be better ways of acting in, in support of the movement. So that's what I would see as the issue there. Your research focuses on this concept called cognitive alternatives or being able to imagine a better type of world. What's the problem we're facing when we are not encouraging people to do this? Because I mean, a lot of the environmental movement has been focusing on this message that something terrible is going to happen in the future if we don't act now. There really hasn't been a sense of envisaging an alternative world really taking traction much. I mean, why are we all struggling when we're not embracing this concept of cognitive alternatives and future vision worlds? In some ways, we could think of it as having a having a goal that you're you're effectively trying to achieve. And so the cognitive alternative is how the world could be different in the future. And then perhaps more importantly, the specific steps in how that could be actually achieved. And so it requires creative thinking on the side of generating what that world's going to look like, being able to picture it in one's head, but then also thinking about how that is actually going to be achieved through some sort of stepwise process. It's really quite logical when you explain it that way. And I'm also out in the field explaining it like that as well. And it's really quite novel for people. Like if anyone's watching the video, I've got this this vertical forest picture in the in the back of my, my Zoom picture. And I often promote pictures of eco cities. And sometimes people think it's just Is they like, wow, that's a really positive vision, or that's kind of like super hopeful, or is it naively optimistic? But the way you describe it, it's just having a goal and just working backwards of how to achieve that goal. It's it's quite logical. But why is this type of thinking you think so novel and unusual for our movement, which has been quite focused on talking about what's going, the problems rather than the solutions? Well, for one, I think people aren't necessarily exposed to it. I mean, if you'd asked me 
you know, 10 years ago, could I imagine your particular background? That's just not something that would even have come to my mind. And so once you're exposed to them, you can start seeing what these things might look like, as well as then subsequently generating new versions of them, generating your own cognitive alternatives that, that perhaps work within your own way of thinking. And our cognitive alternatives might all be different. They're not, they don't necessarily all have to be the same. You might picture what's in your background and I might picture something completely different, but we might be moving towards the same systematic change, even with there are two slightly different cognitive alternatives. Right, right. And can you explain the, the process that you put people through in your research in, in a nutshell and, and explain it in a way that all of us who are not familiar with social science and psychology terms will understand? So in our research, we're really concerned with, uh, I would say, three variables that have to do with explaining collective action. And I suppose I'll start with the importance of the collective action, because you could take independent action towards any, any particular uh, goal. So if you wanted to reduce environmental degradation, there are individual things that you could do, very basic things like recycling more, uh, having your own compost in your backyard, things of that nature. But that, that in my mind, is not enough to really accomplish something that's systematic. To do that, you need collective action. And what I simply mean by that is that people are working toward some collective group. Now, that group in our case is probably something like environmental activists in general, or could be the natural world in general. And so now you are, you are doing things with the express purpose of benefiting broadly that particular collective that we're talking about. And so it's, much, it's certainly much broader scale. And it's also, I think, much more pointed to whatever the, the problem that, that we're trying to address is. And so that's what we're trying to explain. I mean, how do we get people to go from these individual acts to collective acts? How do we get 100,000 people in, in Vancouver, you know, marching in support of this, uh, this particular movement? And so we think, at least from the model we're working in, that, that there are at least three important contributing factors. One of them is you have to view that the system should be changed. So this is what in, in our academic parlance we'll call illegitimacy or legitimacy. Is the way things currently are legitimate or not? And that's effectively, uh, colloquially, we'd say, we'd say, should the system be changed? Should we continue the way it currently is, where humans dominate over nature, where we're able to control it, do whatever we want with it, uh, without limits? And then we might also talk about these, these relationships in terms of the way that government interacts with, with corporations. You know, should corporations, say, have as much power uh, as, as they currently do? So that's the first thing. Should the system even be changed or do we think it's fine, it's legitimate the way it is? Uh, number two is, can it actually be changed? So this is a question about what we refer to as stability. Can the system be changed? Is it ripe for that change? Or is it so stable that even if we thought the system was not legitimate, we would have a very hard time changing it? And so we don't perceive within any reasonable amount of time that, that we're going to make strides in, in, that, uh, in that direction. And then number three, which is where we focus most of our, our thinking and writing, is the cognitive alternatives. And this is specifically how the system can be changed. And then what those specific steps might look like to get there. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of specificity involved in the cognitive alternatives uh, sort of part of the equation. So we have these three, we have, should it be changed? We have, can it be changed? And we have how it might be changed. And that's that positive vision for the future. 
Can you explain a little bit more about what that positive vision was? Like what, what type of things would you be getting people to imagine in your experiment? We've done this a couple of different ways. In the, the, the first paper, we designed a scale, and this was for measuring the extent to which people have these cognitive alternatives. But again, remember I told you that these cognitive alternatives can kind of be unlimited. I mean, there's not one specific cognitive alternative that's going to drive this collective action. And it might be different for different people. So we try to think about all, all kinds of different content areas that people could be thinking about when we ask them to think about these things. And then they would rate on this scale how, how easy it is effectively for them to imagine these various scenarios. So some of them are, are quite basic. They're, they're about imagining a future world where we rely on uh, exclusively renewable energies, uh, where we don't use fossil fuels. Uh, there are items about imagining future worlds that are integrated with nature. Uh, so that would be things like your background, where you know we're not building on top of nature, we're not destroying nature in the process of building civilization, we're now integrating our civilization within it so that nature and, and uh, uh, humanity is working in tandem with one another. So that's a couple of them. Uh, we would also have ones that are about imagining the way that the status quo between government and uh, corporations might change or between the people being governed and the government might change. And so we can, we can think about these alternatives in different ways. So we have the scale for that if we just wanted to measure it. Now, then we've also tried to induce people to think about these cognitive alternatives in different ways. We've tried this in three ways, and we found that one uh, happens to work a little bit better, at least than the other two that we've tried. One is that we have people generate their own. And this, we found, is so far the best method that we've come up with. So we give people a little snapshot of what, from, I suppose, our perspective, the world currently looks like. And then we ask them uh, if they can think about ways in which the world might be different in the future. If they tell us, yes, they can, then they'll get these boxes where they can type in whatever information they want and it'll ask them to specify what the cognitive alternative is and the steps for how uh, they believe that might be achieved. So they're thinking about their own things as they're doing it. So there's this, this creative element to it and they can come up with as many as they want. You know, if they want to come up with six or 12 or uh, just one, um, they, they could do that. And we find that works pretty well. That works to get people to identify more with the environmental activist movement. So they'll, they'll have a greater identification with environmental activists in general. And then they'll at least specify that they're more willing uh, to engage in a whole host of pro-environmental behaviors. And of course, we've also tested it in an actual behavior uh, where we asked uh, people if they were willing to write a letter in support of this climate change movement to the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change in uh, Canada. So that's the first way. We've done two others. Uh, we've tried to take, based on the responses that we've received in other studies, to these, uh, these questions that I just specified, uh, we've taken people's answers and then we've sort of taken what we think are maybe important sort of snippets of those and provided those to people effectively saying, based on interviews we've done with other people, here are different cognitive alternatives that people around the world have come up with. And then, you know, they read these different cognitive alternatives. And that, that doesn't seem to work as well as people generating their own when they're just reading others. And then we've tried to do it uh, in a slightly different way where we show people with a little bit more visual imagery 
So we showed them photographs of uh, the sustainable city in Dubai, which is entirely self-sustaining. And then we've given a description of that as well. And I think there was uh, there was one other that we used, but I can't remember the, the place. But that's effectively kind of showing people images like what your background looks like. And, and I think that's useful because rather than thinking of their own or even reading what other people are specifying the future world might look like, they're visually seeing it for themselves. And I think that probably works really well when these are actually real as well. So you show them real things that are, that are occurring, real places that are sustainable, that look like your background, and they can say, wow, okay, so this actually is plausible. This isn't just something 100 years from now. This is something plausible that's occurring now and that is a possible future world. It's not theoretical. It's, it's actually can be done. So just to, so I understand these three steps that, that a person needs to go through, they need to understand that their world is either legitimate or illegitimate. There's a sense of like, this is wrong. For example, if you think that coal mining and coal power stations aren't wrong, then you're not going to be motivated to try to imagine a different sort of world where renewable energy is the norm. So understanding this concept of this is legitimate, this is illegitimate, then there's a sense of stability and that really ties into hopefulness. Like you have to actually believe it's possible. Like if, if you're just coming up with a kind of a crazy fantasy world or something that people think is completely unviable, they're not going to buy in. So the, the ability of it actually being possible, and that's phrased as, as stability, and then you've got basically this vision of the future, which you call the cognitive alternative, which is you know how we'd actually get there, what this would be. I thought it was really interesting that when you get them to write it down as a creative process, that that worked better than the other types of experiments, which takes me into my next question, that if you were actually like designing a program, say that you were hired by a group of sustainability professionals, they were in urban sustainability, they wanted to come up with a program to, to help with climate change. I mean, what would be your the ideal way you would support these people to try and encourage change in their communities through this type of exercise if you had to design up a program? Well, one, I, th- I, don't, think it, I don't think it requires anything uh, too, too extravagant. I mean, we're showing that it works in something as short as uh, a few minutes of people generating these things. But probably if you wanted to make it a little bit more effective, you could have it be, have somebody that's doing a little bit more leading. Because what sometimes happens is that we ask people to generate a cognitive alternative, and they might come up with something just really brief and short. Like, I can imagine a world where we use uh, solar and wind energy or something like that. But they can't really specify how that's ever going to be achieved. And so if you had somebody else who was actually leading these in, you know, in a a person-to-person interview format, you could ask other questions to get them to think a little bit further on it, right? So how do, how do you think that we're going to achieve that, that particular alternative that you've come to? What steps need to be taken? What, what status quo needs to be, uh, to be dissolved? What people need to be involved? And then that's going to help those people generate those specific steps for how to get there. That makes it just more plausible. I mean, the more steps that you can think of, that really are part of achieving that that end cognitive alternative, I think the more inclined that you're going to be to actually go out there and do something about it. And so I can understand your research better. Did 
Did your research show that after people do the exercise, they're more inclined to take on a real behavior than if they didn't do the exercise? Or was it more that the exercise predicted what they would have done anyway, if that makes sense. The people that are better at coming up with alternatives are just sort of more naturally able to act. Because I interpreted it as once you'd done the creative um, imagination exercise, you were then more likely to engage in environmental behaviors than if you did not do it, regardless of what sort of person you were before you went into the exercise. Yeah, that, that, that would be my interpretation as well. And we look at it in, in three different three different outcomes that we think are important. One is the extent to which people identify with environmental activists. Uh, so this is what we call a social identity. Somebody you know identifies as being part of this group of people who are acting on behalf of the environment or the natural world. And we've demonstrated that when people think about these cognitive alternatives, the greater extent that they can imagine them in various forms, the more apt they are to identify more with uh, environmental activists. And that's important because identification with environmental activists, uh, other research suggests, is the most proximal predictor of actually engaging in pro-environmental behavior. It's an important thing to alter uh, if we can. Then you have the extent to which people express willingness to engage in different pro-environmental behaviors. And so we've also demonstrated that when people uh, generate these cognitive alternatives, then they express more willingness to engage in a whole host of pro-environmental behaviors. Um, now, we're not actually to the behavior part yet, but being willing to do something is at least uh, somewhat of a precursor to actually doing it. You know, you're less likely to do it if you say, well, I'm not willing to do it anyway. So the more we can get you to say that you're willing to do it, the more likely you will actually do it uh, in the future if these sort of opportunities arise. And then the third is measuring actual behavior. So finding ways in studies to give people the opportunity to actually do some kind of pro-environmental behavior and the way that we've done this so far is that we allowed people, the, we asked them, do you want to write a letter to the Minister of uh, uh, Environment and Climate Change in Canada, uh, who at the time was uh, Catherine McKenna? And if they said yes, then we gave them a page where they could type up their letter. And then we gave them an, a, a sort of extra step to see just how committed they were to this, where we gave them an opportunity to sign their letter. And before they opt into doing this, they're expressly told that we're actually going to compile these letters. And, and we did. And we compiled these letters and we mailed them off uh, to the, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. So they knew that if they wrote the letter and then subsequently, if they wanted to sign the letter, that these were actually going to be in the hands of that, of that particular office. And I think this is, a, this is a good collective action behavior because it specifically works to alter the status quo. If you're you're putting your voice down on paper, you're trying to build a critical mass and subsequently trying to get the, the minister to enact particular policies that support uh, this, this movement that you do support. And I think it's also interesting in your study that you're looking, you're very sort of clearly delineating between individual behavior change and collective action, because this comes up for me all the time. And I find I'm explaining it or working in it every single day where people will criticize or they'll question the behavioral environmental behavioral science and say, why are we trying to get people to do individual behavior change? when we really need we really need the system to be changed it's a very like overly simplistic criticism but it puts me in the position of needing to explain how small individual actions that people take do lead to bigger ones and so the way that you framed your study is 
not so much testing because I read these studies a lot and sometimes they'll test if somebody like reuses a cup, you know, or do they recycle? They're testing these very simple psychological prompts on, on behaviors, but you chose a behavior that is how to influence the system. Was there a reason why you leaned your, your research towards trying to influence the system rather than trying to test if people like, you know, increase their recycling by, by 20%? I would say there's two two reasons that we went that route. The one is that the theoretical model that the background that I come from as a social psychologist is a model of systemic change. And, and I started doing research within this particular theoretical model prior to ever getting involved in research that had to do with the environment at all. I started from that point and then continue to adapt the way that we thought about this model within different contexts. So part of it is just that was my background. And so it made sense for me to continue within, to some degree, the same line of thinking that I'd been doing for years. And then the second is that the uh, special report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out in 2018. And this was around the time that I was getting involved in this line of research. And they make a, I don't remember the exact quote, but they make a specific claim in there that we need systematic change in order to solve what they refer to as the climate crisis. And so that becomes a good, a good lead in when you have this panel saying, look, we, we need individual acts, not going to solve the problem. We need systematic change. We need to alter the status quo. That is the way that things currently work, uh, the system that's in play between people and the environment and between government and people, between government and corporations and so on. And I think it's also um, interesting and worth saying that getting people to engage in, you know, writing a letter or turning up to a meeting is a behaviour. Like all of the behavioural science that we look into about, you know, social norms and in encouraging actions, even like the gamification stuff that I do, trying to get people to give stickers or stars or something to encourage behaviours. I mean, it doesn't really matter what kind of behavior you put in there. The same stuff still applies. However, the type of agency we're trying to encourage in people when we're trying to get them to involve in these bigger systems, I think it takes more thoughtfulness, more thoughtfulness in terms of group behavior and identity and agency. Like I get a sense if I'm using my reusable coffee, I'm going to Starbucks and I'm taking my plastic reusable cup with me. I have a sense of agency over that cup. Like I know that that's my waste and I feel a sense of responsibility over my singular cup and I kind of feel it matters because I know that if I didn't use it that cup wouldn't be there right but if I'm turning up to a meeting or writing a letter like I'm not going to be motivated to do that if I don't genuinely feel that I'm having a sense of agency over the system so I think when we are actually designing for these systems interactions from people there's a sense that this letter writing or this political engagement can be just really forgotten and really empty. I mean, honestly, like I've rarely if ever done anything like that because I just didn't think it would work. I didn't think I would have an impact. So how does your research into these imagination exercises help encourage that sense of agency with communicating with politicians that can easily feel like you're just throwing things into a black hole? I think probably that it's if you if you can show people or get them to think of again plausible cognitive alternatives, one that, that ones that really have a chance of coming to uh, to fruition, and they can come up with these steps of how to achieve that. I think it I think it solves the problem you're talking about because people see, hey, this is already being done. This isn't something that's a hundred years out. That's theoretical. This is something very plausible. Uh, that's already happening. I can be part of, of 
helping that either happen faster or happen at a greater scale. And so they're seeing that other people who maybe have taken steps toward, toward making these, these kind of alternatives come to fruition have in fact been successful, at least you know in some cases. And so that probably kind of intuitively tells them that, well, if I, if I do some of the same things, that's also going to help. There is actually going to be a finish line. There's going to be a sort of uh, environmental prize at the end of it, so to speak. And you mentioned before that I, I, group identification is uh, one of the most strong predictors of people taking taking action. So I'm thinking, you know, if I'm designing a program like this of getting people to engage in these exercises and do some actions, I really need to provide some extra padding around kind of nurturing this sense of identification. Can you talk a bit more about identification and how we could, like if I'm in the field, trying to figure out how to kind of manifest more of this, how I, how I could do that? If we, if we think about social identity as being that part of an individual's identity that stems from their membership in uh, social categories, you know, regardless of what those categories are, they could be a category of environmental activists, they could be the category of nature, you know, they could be category of, uh, you know, professor uh, for me, whatever, whatever the way in which we categorize ourselves is. And what social identity does, I mean, the more that we identify these particular categories, the more likely we are to engage in behaviors that benefit that particular category that we belong to. It's sort of like saying, hey, these are, these are my people, right? This is, this is my group. These are the people that I care about, the causes that I care about. I identify with all the different nuts and bolts that make up this particular category and what they believe and so on and so forth. And so you're going to act in ways fairly automatically that are going to protect that particular uh, that particular category or raise the status of the category. So if we're talking about a sort of lower status group, which in the context of our research would be nature, uh, the more you identify with nature, the more likely you would want to subsequently then protect nature, uh, you know, whatever ways that, that you can. And then the other one, the uh, identifying with political activists, I suppose I'd say that we, we think about two identities that come up in our line of research. You have identification with nature, which is a very broad-based category, and then you have a slightly more specific one, which is identifying with political activists, uh, specifically environmental political activists, or something like an environmental activist movement, however you want to word the identity. And one of them has a stronger relationship with these pro-environmental collective behaviors than the other, and that one's the identification with environmental environmental activists. And that's because that's a particular category that it expressly states how somebody should, should behave. And then those ways that somebody should behave end up being all these various pro-environmental behaviors that, that one could engage in. Identification with nature is much more broad-based. So it does to some degree, the more you identify with it, lead you to want to protect nature a little bit, but it's not as specific. It doesn't lay out how you actually go about doing that. That's where the identification with environmental activists come in. So we can think of it kind of, if thought of it as a causal chain, we'd have something that looks like identification with nature causing to some degree identification with environmental activists, and then the extent to which you identify as an environmental activist is subsequently going to cause the, uh, the, the pro-environmental behavior. And then the cognitive alternatives and the two other, the instability and uh, uh, the illegitimacy parts come in because these three things help 
both induce uh, the pro-environmental behaviors, but also induce the identification with environmental activists, which then, again, help, helps us uh, explain the collective behaviors. Right, right. So it's kind of like a master umbrella or kind of like nesting of, of social identities. I think people tend to assume that the reason why people act is because of just the earth, like it just matters. And we're doing it because of the earth. But every single thing I read, the earth is like the least motivating factor in what actually drives people to do stuff. And what you're saying, it's that it's to do with our social identification with the group is the most powerful thing about us that gets us to act. Like we're not just an island that just reads about a glacier or a tree. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to like act completely independently of my own intellectual volition over this issue. We're really like trying to get more liked by the group, trying to increase our status in the group. We've got a certain amount of social cohesion that bonds us with this group. So in terms of engaging in these, these actions, it's really looking at it through the lens of the group behavior is really kind of what's really going on. And that's the way we need to think of these, think of these things. And I see that really missing in the line of work. We're all like, how do we get individual people to act? They only do it because of money. It's this overly very, very simplistic view of human behavior. But we have to try and think about how we get groups to do things. I mean, what are your thoughts on groups and how we can encourage groups and why groups of humans matter when we're seeing things as opposed to we're all just individual islands, just many of them all stuck together? Well, groups matter because they give us what I would call uh, effectively group-based positive self-esteem. When our groups succeed, when our groups achieve things, that makes us feel good about ourselves because we were part of that process. We were part of the members that helped achieve whatever the particular goal was. And groups do give us specific goals, right? If, if we're part of uh, an environmental activist movement broadly, or even a more specific group, if there's some particular environmental organization that somebody really likes and is an official member, you know, they pay their, their monthly contribution or whatever it is, that gives them, again, a, a greater sense of self-esteem that comes from being part of the solution. So how do you get people to identify if we wanted people to identify more with, uh, with the activist movement? We've got to show them that, that there is, in fact, something to be gained from doing so. You've got to make it easy to join the group, what we'd call permeability. Is a group boundary permeable or not? You know, it, it, it needs to be, it needs to look like something that somebody would actually want to join. So in some sense, that kind of means to me that a group can't be too serious. People want to have fun in groups. Not everybody, we don't want our groups to be all work and no play. So you might be able to get people into a movement because you're getting them to join a particular organization, which is its own social category, and that's a pro-environmental uh, organization, let's say. And they may not even be joining because they really care about the environmental movement. They might be joining for some other reason, maybe because, you know, your new, new members get uh, a free whatever, you know, some object, a bag, or I don't know, something that they would be desirable for them, I suppose, uh, even if they weren't uh, pro-environmentalists. But once they're in the group, you start meeting people, right? You start building relationships with people. You start feeling, as you said, that sense of camaraderie between the group members. You start the group, presumably from, from the, the leadership, is going to start dictating what particular goals might need to be achieved, reaching particular uh, particular levels. It could be something like collective consumption. Like I know you've got you've got all these uh, these apps that have to do with tracking how much uh, energy use people have and so on. Well, the use of that is that it creates goals. And so if you have a group 
that's decided that you're going to meet some some specified criteria, there's an incentive there as the group to meet it. And as you meet those goals, you get greater self-esteem as a member of the group for having completed something together. And you also build camaraderie with the members of the group as a whole. And so you can start small, you can build that collective up over time until you get to you know, whatever higher level collective behavior that you think is most important for achieving the various cognitive alternatives that you've come up with. So I could host like like a barbecue or something, but I wouldn't do it. It'd have to be a vegan barbecue, like a Sunday, like an ice cream party, right? And I've got kids, so kids love ice cream. Not trying to go too harsh on the whole environmental climate change, let's change the world thing. Maybe it's like a subline, like ice cream party. And we care about the planet, vegan ice cream. And I can get families and people in my neighborhood around. I know that the subtone is like an environmental kind of theme. And then in this group, I can say, thanks for everybody. You know, like we've got like 20 flavors of amazing vegan ice cream. Thanks for coming. Kids are playing. Let's, you know, chat about some, some stuff. Um, and then in that, I'm starting to create kind of like a group. And I'm saying, well, you know, we're going to use this group. We want to increase the amount of like solar that's installed in our neighborhood. We want to get perhaps the whole city off um, natural gas. I know all the cities are trying to do that right now. And we also want to make sure this new climate bill gets through the Senate. And so we're trying to get, you know, a couple of hundred people to write some letters. And then we become like the neighborhood, you know, like Earth ice cream group. Fun, very easy, what you say, very permeable, easy for people to access, not aggressive. But it's leading to a very like specific goal that's actually quite hard hitting. Like if we can get funding to happen or influence the mayor more than just using less plastic ourselves and create, trying to create some big systemic changes. That group cohesion with a group goal and us working together with a group goal is enormously more powerful than if you were to just ask me by my individual self to just to do this stuff. And I've actually got it here. I copied it from your report that says group identity increases efficacy. So the more I identify with this group, the more efficacy I have. Can you just explain what the word efficacy is? Because I see it a lot in psychology, and I think it's pretty pivotal to our conversation. Yeah, I, um, I think what we're talking about here is that the more you identify with the group, the more control you feel that you have over the group behaviors. The more control, the, the more you believe that you and the other group members are able to dictate the various outcomes. And so I think that's certainly important for, for achieving any kind of behavior, not just collective behaviors. But. Is efficacy and agency the same thing? Do they mean the same thing? I, I don't know. That sounds like a dictionary <laughs> question. <laughs> well, sometimes I mean, psychologists, like, they, they mean totally different things because you guys go into, like, so much detail in these, what these phrases mean. I, I think I'd have to go back and see how, uh, how all the various uh, researchers are defining things. But there are certainly funny cases in academia where different groups of, of people will use different words for the same thing. And then over time, you'll realize you've been studying the same thing as somebody else. You've just been calling it something different. Yeah, well, you should see some of the, I mean, you probably do see them, like the titles of these studies I look through in the Journal of Environmental Psychology. I'm just like, what the? Like, who could possibly, like, understand what this sentence means? It's, like, so complicated. I saw, actually, a post on Twitter that said, like, explain your PhD as clickbait. And it was, like, one of the, it was so funny. Like, people were just, like, top five ways to whatever. But I just wish that the academic papers were titled as clickbait titles. So at least I would, like, understand, like, what they meant without taking, like, 30 minutes to, yeah. to figure it out. Even ours is not, uh, it's pretty esoteric, right? I mean, measuring cognitive alternatives to environmental status quo. <laughs> I will write. <laughs> how when many, I write... <laughs> many big words can we, can we put in the title? 
<laughs> well, that's why I'm here. When I write up this blog post, it will have a super clickbaity title and then I'll try to get lots of people to look at it and it will be easy easy to understand, with a little glossary of all the terms. The issue is that when we, when we publish in journals, if we wrote a paper and described it as that uh, we're studying whether something should be changed, whether it can be changed, or how it can be changed, they're, not, they're probably not going to publish <laughs> our paper. <laughs> right, a little like an academic world of everybody trying to impress everybody. I do wish, though, that the academic world was, I know everybody's trying to kind of like impress everybody in the academic bubble, but there was another version of incentive that it also mattered how much you managed to impress several thousand other people out there who are actually practicing it, which I know sometimes it's like looked down upon in your world. If you're like actively like blogging and podcasting and getting out there, you can possibly be seen as not as serious a scientist. Is that true? I think that's changing. I mean, I think that certainly would have been true 20 years ago, but I think it's changing. I think you know, that researchers, academics are want more visibility to their work in the public. And even, even schools, I mean, my, my college, for example, looks very favorably upon these sorts of engagements, right? That there is like sort of what they would call public outreach um, and that we're not just publishing in journals for other people like us to read. Because readership in academic journals is quite low. You, you, you might be the... Uh, the only non-academic that's ever read our paper. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a little bit, a little bit that way. I, even when I'm looking up the the authors to try and interview, some of them don't get back to me because they literally only have your email address. And the mm. authors have such a, a low profile. I can't find them on LinkedIn. I can't find them on Twitter. And I'm like, who are these people? I can't even tag them. A lot of the time, I literally cannot tag the author on Twitter of the work that they've done, which is fascinating and super useful. Yeah, there's a real absence of any kind of systems or a culture or an actual practical real incentive or program. Like there's no reason why the academic journals couldn't have another parallel process of people like me who work with people like you and are like, cool, academic paper, let's turn it into all of this material and try and distribute it, you know, for wider consumption, that it couldn't be doing both simultaneously all the time. I don't know why it's not designed that way. There are lots of things that I can tell you that are wrong with the, the, the way the academia is structured <laughs> and the incentive system that's in play. But <laughs> I just wanted to dive a bit more deeply into this idea of stable versus unstable realities. What do you mean by a stable reality versus an unstable reality and how we need to work with that with our visions of like the current world and the future world? The, the way that I position uh, the idea of stability of the, the system, two things in tandem. I mean, if you, if you view a system as, as stable and or view it as legitimate, then there's less, I think, less incentive to go about imagining various cognitive terms. Like if I looked at, if I looked at the current world and I said, the way that uh, it's structured in terms of this relationship between humans and the rest of nature or between government and corporations, government and people, et cetera, is stable. I'm saying, I don't think there's a very good chance that this system's going to be changed at least anytime soon. So there's kind of a time component to it. I might in fact believe that uh, it can be changed in the long run, but if I'm thinking down the road and I'm thinking 50 years from now, then I'm also thinking, well, I'm probably not going to be around in 50 years. Why would I imagine a different world and then work toward achieving that different world? That's so far into the future. I think our, our, our brains work on a, on a smaller time scale, right? 
what, what can I do today that maybe is going to affect how things are next year or in five years or something like that? And so for, for stability, it's, it's really about whether there's an incentive to go about thinking about a future way, a better way of doing things. I think that not entirely, but to some degree, you need to view that the current system can in fact be changed in some, some, limited, uh, some limited time frame where it becomes reasonable. What that is, I don't know, maybe that's 10 years, maybe it's 15 years. And we've, we've actually run into problems in our studies when we try to measure stability, when we don't put a time frame. I think in, in fact, the paper that we're talking about, the first study, I think we didn't have a specification of the timeline at which somebody thought or didn't think uh, that the current system might be changed. Then we changed it and we put in a 15-year time frame because without, everybody thinks the system can be changed if you give them unlimited time. Right. It's like, is the world going to look the same today uh, or in 100 years as it is today? Nobody's going to tell you yes uh, to a question like that. Um, they know that it's going to change. Uh, but that time, that time frame is so far out. I'll go a little bit further because I, I think it's important to think about the way, and especially these three concepts interact. Generally, the way that, I, that I've originally, and still do to some extent, that I think about how the illegitimacy and the instability and the cognitive alternatives are related to one another is that you view the system as, as unstable, or you view the system as illegitimate, and that drives the generation of these cognitive alternatives. But we're always talking about groups. I mean, this whole model is a group-based model. And so within groups, groups are almost exclusively hierarchical in nature. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find real-world groups where everybody's equal status, right? There's, there's leaders, and there's followers, and there's you know, different people with different degrees of status in between. Leaders have the ability to present cognitive alternatives to individuals. So simplistically speaking, imagine I'm a person in, in a group, and I, in fact, believe the current system is maybe quite stable. It's unlikely to be changed in the near future. And I also maybe to some degree believe the system's relatively legit. Like I do believe humans are the, the highest level of, of being and that maybe I think it's right that we have more control over the way things uh, the way things work and that we might degrade the environment to benefit ourselves to some extent. If I'm in a group, a leader could sort of present an alternative way of doing things. They could show me these images, right, these future worlds, say, well, even though you think the current system is stable and you think it's legitimate, I actually think that you might find there's a better way. And then if they show you that better way, you might then start to start viewing the, the current system as a little less legitimate, as a little more unstable. Like, oh, I didn't think it could be changed, say, in the next 15 years, but now I have this person in my group who's showing me ways in which it might be, ways in which we could plausibly achieve these things. And so now the extent to which I view the current system as stable might, uh, might decrease. The function of that is that these things are interacting with one another, right? The, the cognitive alternatives could come first, the illegitimacy and, uh, and instability come second, or it could be the reverse, that you know, absent the leaders, then the instability and illegitimacy and instability come first, and then you get the cognitive alternatives after. Right, because I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because, and it's a, it's a lot more nuanced in terms of how we're trying to tell the story than just good and bad, which is kind of the way I was thinking of it. I was like, fossil fuels and the current world system is bad. And the eco-utopia where we've all figured it out is good. So 
that's just obvious and we should go there. There's a lot more subtlety in how we're trying to tell these stories if we're trying to actually erode the sense of legitimacy and stability rather than just saying, you know, it's got pollution and climate change is bad. You know, really trying to get into the nuance of this petroleum, and I'm just thinking of cars as an example, freeways, petroleum-based cars, oil extraction, really trying to tell the story of a sense of this is an unstable system, like it's going to run out, it's able to change. It was only built fairly recently in human history, so it can also actually just go away. We don't have to accept it as being normal. It's illegitimate in the term, in the way that it's been designed. You know, it wasn't really democratically designed mm. in terms of the way cities and corporations got together and paved everything. We didn't all come up with it, but that is illegitimate and it's unstable. And this other world where cities are designed more for people, more for nature, with renewable energy, the sun is going to be around for a very long time, longer than fossil fuels. That is actually the stable world. That is both legitimate and stable. And I think if I was having to curate or write or illustrate two different stories through the lens of stability versus instability and legitimacy versus illegitimacy, I would do it just a bit differently than just this simple lens of good and bad, which even good and bad is a little bit further than what we've been in, which is just bad. (laughs) So, I mean, the good and bad, you know, we talk about cognitive alternatives. I haven't explicitly stated this, but the alternatives that we talk about are generally positive. We don't spend any time in our paper discussing negative visions uh, for the future. One, I think, interesting thing about that is telling people that, let's say, the world currently, or, you know, or we're going down like a negative trajectory, right? Things are bad now, things are getting worse. That doesn't necessarily undermine views of stability or views of, legit- of legitimacy, because you could reasonably look at a system and say, yeah, the system's no good, but also I think it's stable, it's unlikely to be changed, and I think that you know, at least the status quo within the system is legitimate. And so showing people the the way things are bad doesn't necessarily work, uh, or at least doesn't work very well. Whereas when you show people the positive visions for the future, you show them a better way of doing things than the current system. Even if you think the current system is pretty good, right? If I go, hey, I'd give the current system an 8 out of 10. Well, there's still room for improvement. And so if you can show groups and individuals those alternatives that improve, on the current world, then there's an incentive to then think that, okay, the current system can actually be changed. And there's there's a better way, there's a more legitimate way uh, of doing things. Right. It's a really important nuance that I think that if you show people basically all the bad stuff that is happening, we can all agree that it's bad. But if we agree that it's so stable, it's unable to be fixed, we'll lose that efficacy slash agency that might get us to change. So just talking about how everything's terrible doesn't necessarily encourage any sort of sense of agency because we're like, oh, it's stuck that way. Whereas if we are using the the vision of the future, the solutions, the cognitive alternatives, what that does is actually corrodes our faith in the current system. We no longer accept it as being this stable system or having faith in it. And I thought that was really interesting in your research. Can you tell me about the BBC prison study that where they did something, they, they corroded the faith in the current system? BBC uh, prison study, which I think is, is 2006, what they did was they created a mock environment uh, in which uh, it was designed as a mock prison and people were randomly allocated to be either guards in the prison, uh, so that's the high status group, uh, or prisoners in prison, and that's the low status group. You effectively start off by creating a system that looks somewhat like a real prison environment. 
The prisoners are going to be locked up. They'll be let out for free time here and there. They'll have their meals that are going to be adequate, but not good by any means, and so on and so forth. And then you naturally watch what the progression is. And part of the natural progression that uh, the researchers saw in the BBC study was that over time, time, I mean, a matter of days, uh, I think we're talking about six days total uh, in, in, in this context. Uh, in the first couple of days, what you see is that the prisoners sort of begin to build camaraderie with each other. They begin to form a group, that is that they are linked together, they have similar similar goals, and that goal is uh, turns out to be to improve their status as prisoners within the system, to get more free time, to get more cigarette uh, smoking breaks, to get, uh, get better food, and, and so on. And so what you see is their social identification increasing over the course of the days longer in their study. The other thing that you see is you see the extent to which they can imagine cognitive alternatives increasing over the course of days as well. As they're communicating with each other, they're talking about ways of improving the current system, they're spreading that information, right? They're, they're showing each other effectively uh, what a future world would look like uh, in a few days' time. And that actually drives them to action where they effectively overthrow the guards, not violently, this is all through negotiation, but they, uh, they overthrow the system and then they effectively sit down with the guards and try to come up with a, a different system to use for the few remaining days of uh, the study. So you see the identification going and you see the cognitive alternatives uh, increasing as well. And then what the researchers did at one point, I think it was on day two or three or something like that, They'd originally not really predicted that the cognitive alternatives were going to happen automatically, which they did end up occurring that way. And so they'd actually designed an experimental manipulation by which they would plant a new prisoner into the system. And this person was chosen specifically because they were a trade union organizer in their real life. And they thought, this is the kind of person who's going to go in, who's going to think about ways of changing the status quo and affect generating these cognitive alternatives, going to get the other prisoners to see that and show them a stepwise way that they could do this negotiation and, and alter the status quo of the system. And so PFX did that, and you ended up seeing that uh, to some degree play out in the BBC study. Ultimately, they designed a new system, uh, which uh, the researchers describe as a commune, um, and then there was infighting over the commune, and then they dissolved the study because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't effectively negotiate the way that they wanted the, the, the prison to run after that. So what we can learn from the study is that if we imagine a, another possible world, we can all organize, get our way, but then we fall into um, a disarray commune if we don't if we don't manage it. I think that's happened in the real environmental world many, many times already. But you mentioned leadership earlier, and it also talks about in your research this idea of um, you know what a leader is, a leader having a vision, phrases like who we are, what we might become. Can you talk a bit more about? the role of the leader and the cognitive alternative in the group? Yeah, I, I, I think that the leaders in groups are the people who are able to show that future world to the other group members. It's the leaders that effectively dictate the goals, what kinds of things the group is going to be dedicated to. And usually the, the way leadership works is there is a there's a relationship between the, we call prototypicality. There's a relationship between how much a given individual in the group looks like the ideal group member 
and the extent to which that group member is respected by other group members. And so usually the way you end up being the leader is you're the leader because you're the most prototypical member or one of the most prototypical members of the group. You embody the whole of the group. You embody all the values and the traditions, right? All the beliefs and so on, uh, the, the norms of the group. And because you effectively embody the ideal group member as, as best one can, you then are ultimately the most respected or one of the most respected people in the group. And so that's important because if the leader is going to effectively be showing these cognitive alternatives and what the group can do to try to achieve these cognitive alternatives, it's useful that the group, that the, that the leader is in fact respected. When a leader is not respected, probably in part because they're no longer prototypical, uh, they're maybe doing things that are against what the group norms are and the group values and so on, they'll become more disrespected. And then people maybe would not take as seriously the cognitive alternatives uh, that, that may be presented by that particular leader. It made me think of you know the Martin Luther King I have a dream speech, which I used in my TED talk and in my um in my talks a lot, that just how critical it is, not just that we have a dream, but that is the 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 role of a leader. If you're a leader in a community group or you're a CEO or any type of group that you're in, it doesn't need to be like big L leader like politicians. Many of us are sort of small leaders in little groups that we're in. That your role with that group is basically just having a goal and being able to illustrate that vision. Like that's a core role in, in leading a group and how change happens, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the leaders in groups are typically the visionary. <laughs> which, yeah, so what do you think is, about Greta Thunberg? Greta Thunberg would be considered to be a leader, but what she talks about is um, the very, very scary future. Do you think she's doing a good job talking only about the very scary future as opposed to the, the alternative world, the, the good world that we could have? I suppose two two things that I'll uh, I'll comment on. Or one one is that I, I think the approach and the, the approach of talking about the the gloom and doom as you've called it is not a good way of presenting solutions to people. And maybe maybe that's for two reasons. One, you have what I've already mentioned, where if we if we look at the world and its trajectory and we see it as bad and we see it as getting worse. That doesn't necessarily influence our projections of, uh, of stability and illegitimacy. I mean, you could very well think that the system's stable and that it's legitimate, even if it's not as good as you want it to be. You may not perceive that it actually can be better. So it's kind of like, oh, well, the world's terrible, but it is the way it is. So we're not maybe generating the things we need to be generating to get the collective action that we want. And two is that I think that the negative visions for the future, the other problem with it is that. These are predictions that may or may not come true in the future. If you look at the, the history of these kinds of negative predictions, if you look at typically your pro-environmental individuals, I'll use Paul Ehrlich as the example, the biologist who wrote the population bomb. He was a doom and gloom guy. Uh, the, the world's going to fall apart if we don't uh, start, one, reducing the population, but also reducing our, our overuse of the, of the resources. And I think his number was that the world could sustain something like 2 billion people. And once we uh, surpass 2 billion people, you're going to see uh, mass famines and millions and millions of people were going to die off. That, of course, never came to fruition because people are visionaries. People are developing technologies. We have, for example, better yields today in farming uh, than we have in the past. 
that's based on technology, that's based on uh, altering seeds and, and so on, tools and farming get better yields and so on. And so the problem with the negative predictions are that they often don't actually turn out to be correct, in part because we do things to prevent them. But then what that enables is if I'm somebody observing and I look at the predictions, well, I could go over and over again, well, you keep predicting this and it never comes true. You keep predicting the doom and gloom and it never comes true. Right? You, you keep predicting the mass starvation, it never comes true. You keep predicting the complete decimation of, of cities because of rising tides and so on, and then it never comes true. And so it's a way to, I think, enable the hand waving. You could say, now, what's the point of listening to these guys? They're always wrong. They never predict accurate. And I think that's just an issue with predictions in general is it isn't true that the world is going to be underwater in 30 years. That may be a prediction that you know, some particular environmental figure thinks may be true, but it may not come to fruition and probably it won't come to fruition if we pay attention at all to the, uh, to, to, to the history of these kinds of claims. Well, if you hear the real climate scientists talk about it rather than the activist types who you know often are, are, are authors or activists you do get a more balanced approach of people saying that there's you know there's multiple directions it could go this is one scenario which is very frightening then there's sort of a middle ground scenario which is there is warming and some ecosystems will be affected and some bad things will happen but it's not going to be the entire earth is on fire and we all die and then there's another possible way which is we actually really figure out our way out of fossil fuels reasonably rapidly and we don't see much catastrophic warming at all. I find that if you listen to the people that really have that have the PhDs and really look at the scenarios, they'll give you the more balanced approach of is it going to be A, B or C, depending on what we do, rather than the, the kind of like the hyperbolic, scary predictions. But what concerns me and what also what fascinates me about, about this issue is I see a lot of people in a, a very deeply distressed, overwhelmed state to do with climate. I mean, I don't personally feel that way but I do remember feeling that way when I was when I was 16 I was like Greta Thunberg freaking out and uh, people typing things on Twitter that are just like dreadful like you know I'm never gonna have children you know every, we're all gonna die like I've just been depressed for weeks since I read some book on climate change I don't see that particular emotional overwhelm perhaps it's a necessary emotional process to go through but that doesn't seem to be the thinking that is going to get us where we need to go. And when I see the other lens of looking at the amazing possible future, the solutions, the creativity and the imagination it takes to create that world, I see that as hatching open the kind of epic innovation that we're going to need. Like often change is talked about in terms of individual changes, you know, like recycling more or riding your bike, and then like systems changes as affecting the political system, like writing letters and changing laws. But there's a whole other thing going on, which is the massive amounts of innovation that it takes. Like it, it takes an enormous amount of engineering and designing and problem solving to actually figure this stuff out. Like how do we build all these buildings? Like somebody had to design that and figure it all out. They had to measure, you know, how much the trees weigh and how much concrete it needed. And there are people trying to figure out how to build skyscrapers out of wood. Like there's a there's just so much nuanced design. And that's something that's not going to happen overnight. That's like decades of work. The guy who invented the green wall, Patrick Blanc, I mean, he spent his lifetime trying to figure out how to build these giant green walls and then he shares it and now they're sort of going up everywhere. What are your thoughts in terms of like trying to 
move even beyond systems influence, but into this this long-term innovation in terms of the the mind space it creates for people. That's an innovation-based problem-solving mindset versus this, I think it's a really tragic sort of emotional overwhelm that that people can get stuck in, especially young people now. I I would say that uh, technology is amazing. Innovation is amazing. And I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm certainly not uh, one of these subscribers to the doom and gloom scenarios not because they're not possible futures, uh, they could be possible futures, but because humanity always seems to have this knack uh, for, for overcoming challenges and creating new ways of doing things that are better than the ways we've been doing them in the past. So I suppose I'd say that I have, uh, I have faith in all the engineers and other people that are involved in these sorts of things. They're, they're going to make these, these imagined alternatives come to fruition. And, you know, maybe that's 10 years from now or 20 years from now or so on, but it'll end up happening. And uh, the, the doom and gloom scenarios, uh, I don't think will end up happening for that reason. It's like hope at the end of the tunnel. I mean, the, the vision is that the vision is there. And even if we don't have the steps to get there right now, there are all kinds of great minds at work uh, creating the, the things we need in order to, to create these future worlds. I mean, I really hope in my lifetime I can I can play a role in trying to hatch that open in people. Like people have a little Easter egg inside them and I can just be like, you know, it's possible. Like you can come up with great ideas and you can innovate. You know, you don't need to just live a either a, a distressed, overwhelmed life or a life where you don't make a contribution. You know, we're all capable of, of something. When I'm thinking through these type of future world experiences, I think of all these levels of salience of the experience. Like there's a planetarium at Cal Academy that I go to with my daughter before they closed it for COVID, but they have these like these 20 minute movies that are just remarkable. Like you go in there and there's all like the the lights and it's this amazing experience and it's looks really three-dimensional. There's one where you go into the ocean and you learn all about like climate change. And there's another one about outer space. And I think, oh, I really have to pitch to them to do like an eco city version, a biophilic cities version of this. And I feel like so emotionally moved every time I go into the planetarium and I've watched the same movie probably like 20 times at this planetarium with my daughter. It's just as good every single time. So like a planetarium experience, then you've got audio I did a, uh, a guided meditation to try and encourage people to take action to change the world that you do in a, a meditation state. But I don't know much about neuroscience, but I think you have different brain waves when you meditate. There's watching things on a TV screen, like a video, there's reading a script, there's magic leap, like augmented reality glasses where you could see something, VR or AR, which is, is, is quite incredible. I've tried them on and, and used them before. So you've got levels of depth of the experience. Like you mentioned before that when people write it up themselves, they have a certain type of experience that's that's better than if they just read it written down. How much do you think the immersive salience of the experience matters? Like, does it matter a lot? Like, should we really be pitching for like a million dollars to make like a hyper super immersive like planetarium AR thing, which could be really, really amazing and people are just like life changed? Or do you think like simpler versions are enough? And part of the reason I asked this, partly because I would love to build this stuff, but I asked a similar question of a another guy who studies whether you get like smiley or frowny faces, depending on your electricity consumption. Yeah. And I'd always thought that if you had like, not just a smiley or frowny face, but a super amazing character, like it had eyes and it danced and I could get like Pixar to make one by, you know, the world's best artists. And he just said, no, he said, you know, the part of the brain is so primitive that interprets, am I liked or am I not liked? Whether you make like a hand-drawn smiley face or whether you make like this super incredible emotive character, like it's probably just going to have the same effect. 
So I'm kind of asking you the same question. Like, what's your hunch as to how out there we should get with how immersive these experiences can be? Um, I, I'll leave it to the neuroscientist to tell me all the nuts and bolts of uh, how it affects the brain. That's that's far out, far outside my uh, my expertise. But I mean, in terms of generating the cognitive alternatives, I do think that an immersive experience is going to increase this. And I think to some degree, we've already seen that in our recent experiments that are not published yet, where, I mean, the most immersive one we have is where people are generating them for themselves. But I certainly view that as more immersive than if you're simply reading, say, a list of cognitive alternatives that other people have come up with and relayed to us through, through interviews. One doesn't really require any thinking. Uh, it just right. It's it's maybe just more passive reading. One really requires you to put your brain to work and imagine what these things are going to look like, and then relay that information to to us. We're talking right now about taking it a step further in two ways. I mean, one, we have now that I'm like finding out there's all these brilliant images that people have already created that are all over Google that you can look at it, and, and you put me in contact with the. With the architect that does uh, some of these drawings as well. I I'm making we can... a circle. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm finding them all. Making a club. Making a yeah, so, club. So we're already we're already looking at uh, utilizing just more imagery because right now the extent to which we've really used images is pretty bland. Uh, I mean, I showed you, I sent you the images we've used. They're not that exciting, but they're better than nothing. I think we could do a better job there and test that, compare that to the the individual generation of these things. And then additionally, I mean, we are looking at uh, virtual reality as a method, but I'm not sure yet if somebody has created. But like you've mentioned, I love the idea of doing the sort of eco city, but where it's actually involved and, you know, it's 3D, you're walking through the city, you're seeing all these buildings on the streets, there's other other people in the virtual world, you're interacting with them, uh, almost like a, a game, you can even create it to a game, not something like Grand Theft Auto, but like kind of like Grand Theft Auto, where you're, you're running around in the city, you're navigating this world, you're engaging in various tasks, hopefully for environmental tasks, not, not the stuff you do in that particular game. But I think that would be more immersive. And I think that what we would get out of that is we'd see larger effects on the individuals in terms of the three outcomes that we've been looking at identification with environmental activists, willingness to engage in these various collective for environmental behaviors and then probably greater likelihood of engaging in whatever the behavior that we utilize is. You know, again, we've used the, the writing the, the letters in the past, but there's other ways to do it, things like donating money or, you know, participating in rallies and so forth. My hunch would be that you would get larger effects on these outcomes that we're interested in, the more immersive the experience is. So long as the experience is showing people alternative worlds that they haven't already thought. For me, I mean, that's the whole point of the, the cognitive alternatives to begin with. You're showing people a way things could be that doesn't currently exist, and then showing them some specificity and how that world might be achieved. And all of that could be built in to some, some kind of virtual reality game that sort of eco cities are. We actually have the next episode that's coming out in a week, which will have been a couple of months past by the time this comes out, is with uh, Naomi Augustine. She worked for Magic Leap. And so we're actually talking about how to make, you put on the goggles, the AR goggles, so you can still see the real world, but it's like a transparency over the top and creating these worlds. And that was before I discovered your research. We were just talking about how cool it would be to like see, you know, these, these eco cities. But now that we know about your research, we have a bit more evidence to back up this idea of that there's actually a very real 
practical reason for why we should be creating these these immersive experiences. And it sounds like the way, if we were to try to design up the best way to do it, we would show like the current world because, you know, in those animations, those new eco-city nations that are coming out, they have like the old one and then mm-hmm. it starts off all concrete and then all the trees and all the plants like drop on and you get this transformation right. experience, which is really fun to watch. I think way more fun than when you just see it's already sort of greenified. So you can start with your, the world is all covered in concrete and it's messy. And then it, you, you know, you start to see it to change, which is partly fun, but it also speaks to your research in that we're showing the instability and the illegitimacy of the current world. Like, no, 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 it doesn't have to be that way. And then how we're actually implementing solutions to the new world. But then we want to engage people in the practice of coming up with their own ideas, like sitting down for 20 minutes, write your own ideas. to So it's not just a one way. They're actually kind of doing part of the problem solving work themselves. So we really have that deeper experience and then giving them some actual actions they can engage in at the end, not just spitting them back out into the world, but actually like, well, this is what you can do. And then maybe in a group as well, maybe it could be a group thing. Maybe we get a group and we sit them in a room and gives them this immersive experience and then they write something out and then maybe they talk to each other about it and then like pick top five things you want to do write to your senator install a solar panel or whatever to kind of like manufacture these experiences you know i'm involved in like the art and design community and people are trying to come up with creative ways like creative people who are artists are trying to come up with ideas that they can have a positive influence and i think if they were to listen to this podcast, it would really give them some food in how to create these positive experiences that could create a real change. I mean, what you just described is, you know, as far as I know, sounds sounds in line with the best practices for getting people to generate cognitive alternatives. So. We should find some funding and do up something really fancy. Get, get, and, and see if, we can... if I had a million dollars to give you to do it, I'd give it to you. <laughs> you know what? I have been, um, it's been on my list to pitch to the California Academy of Sciences to make one for the planetarium. It's like a crazy idea, like crazy idea. I don't know how much they cost to make because they have a whole team of animators and all these partners and all these funders. I'm sure it's a really, really big deal. I'm written down on my my diary now that I'm going to ask. You you never know. You never know what will happen. It could be an A-class immersive experience. That that sounds sounds brilliant. Got to try. Got to start somewhere. All right. So just to wrap up, what are you most excited about researching in the future? I mean, what's on our, our current trajectory is uh, for us testing additional ways uh, of manipulating cognitive alternatives. We want to find the best way of doing it, but it also has to be a way that is widely applicable to individuals. There could be something to be said for simplicity. If it gets too extravagant, then it becomes most people aren't going to be able to participate. So you do need some more uh, you know, simple ways of doing this. But for us, we're just currently testing these, what we think are maybe good manipulations for generating cognitive alternatives, doing that. And then we're also just working theoretically with our model, trying to figure out the ordering of these various effects. If we, if our end game is the outcome of collective for environmental behavior, what are all the, all the variables and how are they all integrated that lead people to be more or less likely to engage in these outcomes? Hopefully me and my, um, my, my friends in the practical world can help implement some of it or give you some um, yeah. material. I'm hoping for Earth, Environment, Earth Imagination Day. That's what I'm trying to manifest or trying to inspire. Sounds like you can just, it can just be so simple. Like you just get a group of school kids, you tell them that this future world is possible, and then you ask them to write down some ideas. Really simple process could be done at any age, in school, at university, in any professional environment. It kind of almost seems like a one-size-fits-all kind of 
creative, interesting process to put people through that everybody would get something out of that we're not doing right now. So would you be a fan of our Earth Imagination Day? Sure, sure. <laughs> There's probably something to be said for doing this, whatever activities we come up with, with these cognitive alternative activities in grade school. And again, my hunch would be that doing it earlier is probably better for generating the various behaviors that, that we're interested in later than doing it you know, exclusively as adults. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are big adult concepts that can be simplified down to a very, a very uh, young age. I've got my girl, she's got, she's all down for urban heat islands. She understands all the thermodynamics, all the eco city stuff. She understands the corals. We went to Mexico recently and the the babysitter who was looking after her, and she only talks to me through a, the Google Translate. So it talks out in his computerized voice. They come back from the park and she says, the daughter's only five. She says, your daughter is very advanced. She talks about adult things like natural resources <laughs> and environmental pollution. And I'm like, ah, yeah, muchas gracias. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this has been a delight. And I really hope we can encourage more environmental imagination. It's called Cognitive Alternatives, less exciting name in the academic literature, but we can call it imagination and vision and creativity for future possible worlds. Thanks so much for joining me, Joshua, and I look forward to being able to read more of your research in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of this wonderful episode that I was so thrilled to share. If you haven't got a copy of my book yet, get a copy and have a read of chapter three, which is called Visualize Your World. It gives you a a bunch of exercises that you can work through and start holding environmental imagination workshops. Do it with your team, do it with your school, with your street or whatever club you're involved with. I'm about to start doing it with Earth Imagination Day. I don't know exactly what that's going to be yet, but I'll be hosting regular group Zoom calls to try and create tools and resources and a community who's trying to kick off this practice of imagining a better world, or as Josh calls it, a cognitive alternative. And let's really start figuring out how to reverse engineer this cognitive and emotional energy we get from imagining these worlds and reverse engineer that into real action that we can take now. This is where I think this space is really powerful because I think the imagination brings out the innovation, brings out the dopamine, the energy and the emotions to move forward. And then the behavioral science is really what we need to do to make sure that we're not just imagining in a vacuum, but we're really making steps every day. We're making measurable progress towards the goal. If you loved this episode or you have ideas or anything that you're working on, I'd love to hear from you. My email is kp at helloworld with an e on the end, helloworlde.com. And you can direct message me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram. I love to hear from you. I mostly respond most of the time. I try to respond to everyone, but I would really genuinely love to hear what you are working on. Or if you can draw a picture, put it on Instagram and tag me. We really need a revolution in this practice of imagining a better world. 
Thanks for being on the journey with me. I love to study environmental psychology and share it with you. And if you love this work I've been doing, please consider making a donation on the Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Katie Patrick. You could put in $5, $25 a month, and it really helps to support me continuing to do this work of extracting this academic research and sharing it with our industry of practitioners. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next month.